Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 41, Another Fiendish Crime, The Murder of Annie Chapman. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today from Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK is Chris Scott. From London, England is John Bennett. From Neath in Wales is Gareth Williams. From Pincers, Kent, in the UK is Ben Holm. And from Charlottesville, Virginia is Allie Ryder. I want to thank everybody for joining the show today. The show is on the life and death of Annie Chapman, so here's a bit of background. She was born Eliza Ann Smith in 1841 in Paddington and married a coachman, John Chapman, on 1 May 1869 at All Saints Church, Knightsbridge. They had three children, Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina, and John. Their youngest child, John, was born crippled, and their eldest, Emily, died of meningitis at the age of 11. It doesn't seem to have been a very happy marriage. They both drank, and their marriage ended in 1884. John Chapman continued to pay Annie an allowance of 10 shillings a week up until his death in 1886. By this date, Annie was living in the East End in lodging houses, particularly at 30 Dorset Street, on the same street in which Mary Kelly lived towards the end of her life. Annie Chapman was last seen alive with any certainty at Crossingham's lodging house in the early hours, sometime after 1.30 a.m., on 8 September 1888. She was in the kitchen eating a baked potato, but did not have any money for her DOS, and so was asked to leave. There is a questionable sighting of Annie Chapman outside the place of her death at 29 Hanbury Street, reportedly around 5.30 a.m. Elizabeth Long saw a man and a woman talking. The woman was facing Ms. Long, so the man had his back to the street. She overheard the man ask, Will you? And the woman replied, Yes. Long's description of the man was dark, appeared to be a foreigner, with a brown deerstalker hat, over 40, of shabby genteel appearance, and only a little taller than the woman he was with. Annie Chapman was five feet tall, so if this was Annie Chapman, it would place this man at around five foot two. There were eight rooms in 29 Hanbury Street, including two in the attic, and the dwelling housed 17 people on the morning of Chapman's death. Not one of the 17 people reported to see or hear anything of the murder, which occurred just off the backyard steps to the house, which was reached by walking through an internal passageway. There are three witness reports totals, including Mrs. Long's, which we'll discuss further in the show. John Richardson, who came by the house at around 4.50 a.m., went through the passageway, sat on the back steps to do a quick repair to his shoe using a knife. At this point, he would have been sitting within two feet or so of the body, yet he reportedly saw nothing. The second is of a neighbor, Albert Kadosh, who went into his backyard twice, between 5.15 a.m. and 5.20. The first time, he heard a voice say no, and the second time, he heard something that sounded like a fall against the fence. All three of these accounts, those of Long's, Richardson's, and Kadosh's, are important when we consider the time of death established by Dr. Phillips. Annie Chapman's body was discovered by John Davis, a resident of 29 Hanbury Street, at 545. Here are the injuries to her body. She had bruises on her right temple, upper eyelid, and the top of her chest. She had marks on her face and jaw. Abrasions were on a finger, seemingly from rings being forcibly removed. Her throat had been cut from left to right, nearly decapitating her. Her abdomen had been entirely laid open, and her intestines had been lifted out of her body and placed over her shoulder. Her uterus, the upper portion of her vagina, and the posterior two-thirds of her bladder were removed and carried away by the killer. There were also some objects scattered about near her body, and we'll talk about some of that later. First, let's discuss the time of death. 
What are we to make of these uh, witness sightings? Um, could it have something to do with the Victorian era clocks being wrong and so giving an inaccurate time to Long's witness sighting? Or should we take the witness sightings more importantly than, than we should value the opinion of Dr. Phillips in establishing Annie's time of death? Anyone I think, can take it. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think one of the most crucial things is with a lot of these, and not only this case, is, is how the witnesses estimated the time um, there were certainly uh, church clocks visible in certain ca- – I mean, I think it was Hutchinson who said at one point that he he sort of verified the time by looking at a uh, church clock. But, I mean, certainly Kadosh being in a, uh, in a confined backyard. I mean, I, I don't know how many people at that period of that class and of those financial means, for example, would have carried a pocket watch. And, and even if they had, for example, Albert Kadosh, if he'd just gone out the back to relieve himself, which I presume was his reason for going into the backyard because they'd have had an outside privy, I mean, if he just heard a noise in the back garden, would he actually bother to take out his watch and check the time? Because it would probably seem completely inconsequential. So I think, you know, all, all of these estimates of time have got to be treated with a great deal of caution. Well, now, did, did um, Kadosh um, estimate his time that he went out, went out in the backyard based on the Spitalfields church clock that um, he passed on his way to work, which he claimed said it was roughly about a little after 5.30? Right. Well, wh- when Elizabeth Long uh, had finished passing the front of 29 Hanbury Street, um, she record well just she was going there actually she set the time of her sighting by what she claimed was the brewery clock up in brick lane striking 530 um i'm just trying to work this one out because i've sort of found a sort of a 10 minute ish discrepancy in some reports by some of the other witnesses namely the the guys that were standing outside bailey's packing packing uh shop at number 23 and henry holland and Inspector Chanda, there seems, to, and if the people that were out in the street were judging times by various clocks, whether it's the brewery clock or the church, uh, Christchurch clock, it's possible that one of them or both of those clocks were wrong. And because uh, Albert Kadosh said he got up at five fifteen and went into the yard. Now I don't know how long it would have taken Albert Kadosh to relieve himself twice. Um, he did say there was a bit of a th- it was a three or four minute gap uh, in between him going out the first time and then going out the second time, but that doesn't really mm-hmm. account for fifteen minutes. So he's obviously doing other- he's obviously probably got to sort himself out or whatever it is he's got to do. But when he left, he passed as Jonathan said, mm-hmm. Spitalfields Church said five thirty two. I'm mm-hmm. trying to work this out. If the Spitalfields Church clock was ten minutes fast, whether that might affect the the times. That they claim to have seen various things because the two chaps standing outside Bailey's, um, they said they were out there at about ten past six outside waiting to start work. But Inspector mm-hmm. Chandler said that he was approached by a couple of men two minutes after six, and I believe John Davis found uh, Annie Chapman's body just shortly before six o'clock. Yeah. Um, so it's possible that they might be judging the time that they were standing out there by Christchurch clock which can be seen from Hanbury Street if you're sort of a bit further up that end I mean it's it's, it's all speculation but um, there's a possibility there's also the possibility that people have said that um, 
Elizabeth Long heard the chime of the brewery clock, but it was actually 5.15 rather than 5.30. Yeah. Um, I don't know what anyone thinks on, on that case, which basically means that um, Elizabeth Long had gone gone past um, number 29 Hanbury Street by about five by 5.20, and mm. she would have been missed by a couple of minutes, by a few minutes, by Kadosh on his way out. Um, it seems to like as if it could fit a little bit easier. It's not ideal, mm. but it just sort of does sort of make up for that sort of time. I think all of the, the witness estimates sort of, although, okay, there's eight, ten minute, whatever, there's, there's discrepancies, as you're going to get in any bunch of witness statements, mm. uh, then, then and today. But they, they all bunch around the same sort of time period. I think the main, mm. the main problem is the discrepancy between their slightly varying estimates and the, the medical evidence. Mm. And because of the, I mean, even, even today, estimating... Uh, time of death is never exact, and it's in some ways more an art than a science. Although, obviously, you know there are many more resources at a pathologist's um, disposal today. But certainly, I think in Victorian times, I mean, I, you know, I think a one-hour discrepancy in a time of death at that period, not not being medically qualified as well, I don't know. But what I read about, mm-hmm. you know, when I was doing the sort of the Kelly case, I think a one-hour discrepancy. Um, in the estimated time of death, is is not that uh, probably unusual? Sorry, I was just. I was just. I was just going to. I was just going to add to put in my last uh, sort of two penneth that I, I I would be more inclined personally to go with the witnesses' estimates than with the the medical. Sorry, sorry, Alex. Um, no, that's fine. I was I was sort of going to um, sort of say the same thing. I, I, I've rarely heard, you know, does a coroner give an exact time of death where, you know, mm. except on television, they never really say this person died at 10.32 p.m. At, with an ambient, you know, <laughs> they don't do that. Not even today, as you said, with everything that they have. There uh, is a window that, that is normally given where, you know, they, they died between between this amount of time and that amount of time. So uh, I, I think him saying, you know, that 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 window that, that, that exists there, I mean, obviously if you've got somebody who says, you know, I went out there, there was no one there, someone says they saw them, then we have to go with the witness testimony, not discredit it, because medical science isn't even exact in modern times when it comes to estimating time of death. There's too many variants. What, what was the temperature then? You know, what um, was she, you know, all, all those kinds of things that go into estimating a time of death. And with they, in those days, if they estimate in the time of death, I presume they were doing it on judgments like how warm certain parts of the body still were or how long, it, how long into rigor mortis yeah. the body yeah. was. But if, yeah. if a body like Annie Chapman's was found on a cold stone floor, uh, it was quite early in the morning. Um, I'm not quite sure of the weather conditions, but the fact that her body had been open, opened up, would that, you know, accelerate a cooling of the body if a medical man's going to make sort of assumptions via that? Yeah, I think those, those are the two main ways. And I think it's, it's interesting to contrast this also with the I – don't, I don't want to get off track, but just to briefly add – that it's it's interesting. We've we've got like a one hour discrepancy here, um, which is sort of containable. I think it's uh, salutary to compare that with the like the Maxwell story and the Kelly death because the the estimates there vary so grossly. I mean, the medical evidence pointed at uh, you know there was a huge multi hour difference between the medical time of death and uh, 
and um, Morris's and um, uh, Maxwell's testimony of seeing Kelly the next morning. But I think in the Chapman case, you know, it converges to within about an hour. And um, Phillips didn't arrive at the scene until 6.30 in the morning mm. when, and he estimated the time of death, like we're saying, at 4.30 in the morning. And in, in that context, John, it's, it's, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, we're not just talking about Kadosh and Long as, as the witnesses here. Uh, Richardson also. Richardson was a third independent witness, and, and he was there at uh, around about quarter to five in the morning. Um, uh, when it was you know, uh, dawn, I think uh, around that time would have been uh, just after four o'clock, just starting to get light. And sunrise was about 5.30 or, or, or something of that order. So it would have been quite light in the backyard. And in fact, Richardson himself says uh, quite clearly that he, he could see all around the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly the body was not there when, um, when Phillips estimated the time of death. Yeah. If it had, if it had been, his feet would have been well inches, inches from a. Indeed. Failed to, wouldn't have failed to have noticed it. I don't. Wouldn't have thought. And the stink as well. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think also. I mean, I I find theories that the body was there and he didn't see it. I just find that incredible, mm. because especially this thing about trimming his boot, because he would have actually been sitting on the steps looking down at his feet. So, I mean, he'd have been looking down virtually, you know, to within a foot or so of where the body was. I mean, and I just find it incredible that somebody could have done that and not noticed it. Mm. And get some, some people suggest that the door was open, so that would have sort of, he might not have noticed it because the body was slightly behind the door, but then probably only the head would have been behind the door and the rest of the um, Yeah, but the, the three the steps would have going been down. sticking out miles, you know. But the three steps going down, there was like a diagonal sort of space he could have seen under the door, couldn't he? Yeah, oh yeah, there was that as well, yeah. I mean, there's no way that that door could have hidden anything, to be honest with you. Let's not forget that John Davis, who who went on to discover the body a little later, didn't even go into the yard. Yeah. Uh, mm. Yeah, and in fact, I don't think he went into the yard for several days afterwards, but... Uh, <laughs> Poor chap. But, uh, so, you know, there was no need for the, the door to be completely open, or indeed for anyone to be sitting on the step to have been able to see it, uh, see the body, that is. No. So I think in this instance, Phillips was, was rather coarse-grained in his estimate, and uh, that's, that's a euphemism for quite wrong, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but do we uh, take uh, John's point that, that not only would Dr. Phillips have been wrong, but there's a chance that long sighting could have taken place maybe 10 or so minutes earlier than she had said? Um, just to try to, you know, not that we need to narrow uh, Dr. Phillips's error down from an hour to 45 minutes or anything like that as far as time of death is concerned. But is it the consensus here that, that uh, long sighting and Kadosh's sightings got the times right and it was just Phillips that, that was wrong? Or, do we th- or was everyone a little bit in error here? Uh, just before... Somewhat anyone says anything, I just want to clarify that this idea about the the sighting being slightly earlier. When you look at some of the, when you look at the witness testimony, um, it almost sounds like Elizabeth Long saw Annie Chapman before, sorry, after Albert Kadosh apparently was hearing her in the backyard. And I was just thinking, mm. if that if that's the time discrepancies, would right. that therefore be able to explain it away to put it in the right order, basically? Good point, John. Mm. Right, meaning that long the clock long was basing her time off of was uh, like ten minutes fast. 
basically. Yeah, basically. And, and the, the three guys, the two guys standing outside Bailey's were saying that they were there at ten past six. And they were reasonably within view of um, Christchurch, Spitalfields. It seems that the people out in the street were judging it by clocks. I don't know what um, uh, Chandler, who said that the three men turned up at 6.02, mm. um, seems quite a specific time to say that. Well, this, is, um, this is interesting because the, the, the police at that time, and I believe train stations as well, uh, were receiving uh, telegraphic um, time signals, yeah, or, or at least were synchronising their timepieces according to some semi-automated system using the wonder of uh, of, of, of wires. Um, mm. So uh, police time could well have been always, uh, you know, more accurate than, uh, and usually, uh, if, if you like, faster than uh, street time. Um, as was pointed out earlier, these people didn't tend to have timepieces on them. The common people mm. didn't. And, and in fact... Yeah. Uh, you know, Kadosh's visit into the yard and, and, and John Davis's visit into the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street um, could well have been pr- prompted by you know the common practice of using water clocks, which uh, which workers of that time uh, uh, sometimes did, which was to, to, to fill up their bladders with water before they went to bed so that they, they could guarantee to wake up uh, in the small hours of the morning. Um, so this, this was quite a common practice. I think this idea of maybe the police having slightly more accurate timepieces. Um, I know it's not the, the thing we're talking about tonight, but the um, PC Edward Watkins in Mitre Square says he, he going into the square at one forty four, which seems quite a precise-ish sort of time. Does, does anybody know in um, this area and in the late 1880s if, they, if there would have been um, I don't know if our American cousins will know what I mean by this phrase, but if there were knocker-uppers, um, because oh. They, they, they used to go there, they used to write, I've seen film of it, I mean, I, I can't remember how long it survived, but the chap used to go around with a long pole and tap on your window to wake you up to make sure you were at work on time. Now, I know this was common in the factory towns when a lot of people had to start at the same time, but whether or not this would have occurred in Whitechapel, I don't know. Mm. It, it came an alarm clock. If you remember from the, from the, the Bucks Row murder, sort of it was straying off topic here, which isn't like me. <laughs> Uh, but in, in the Bucks Row murder, um, I think it was, I think it was PC Misen, Jonas Misen, was engaged in in knocking people up uh, when he was accosted and, uh, and and his attention was brought to the murder in Bucks Row. Mm. Oh, so, so, the police, yeah, so the police, police used to do knocker uppers, yeah. Oh right, that's interesting. Uh, and in fact, in Whitechapel, yeah. there, there was a Mrs. Smith, I think, a, a rather rotund lady who could have passed for Annie Chapman in a in a, in a lookalike parade. Yeah. Who, at, the, at the turn of the 20th century or the turn of the 19th, they never worked these things out. Um, yeah. Used to go around with a pea shooter, firing That's, right. Yeah, I've heard that. Windows, yeah. 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 <laughs> so all kinds yeah. of devices, rather crude devices, were used to uh, to allow the common man to keep time. Uh, so if it wasn't the, the you know the pressure of the of the fluid in their bladders, then Mrs. Smith would be firing her own peas at their windows. Oh, for heaven's <laughs> sake! Now, are you suggesting, Chris, that maybe that's how Kadosh was waking up? Um, well, it was just an idea, but I, I mean, I don't even know if they were in use at the time. It was just a suddenly. A th- I just remember seeing a piece of archive film, and this was um, this was to do with the more, more to do with the sort of industrial areas, like in the Midlands and the North, where they they used to have like literally hundreds of people starting at 
on set shifts and this guy used to go around and they called him the knocker upper. He had a bloody great long pole, like, like a fishing pole, and he'd come round and tap on your window and he would keep tapping until you opened it and acknowledged him. I thought, yeah, right, I love that in the mornings. There are no reports of that um, taking no, place no, in Hanbury Street. No. Or I I'll, do, I'll, do a, I'll do a bit of reading. So can I just very quickly make one comment? There was, a, there was a, ages ago on the old, uh, I think it was even prior to the last big crash we had on the boards, going back to what John said about the discrepancy between um, Long and uh, Kadosh, I remember, and I can't for the life of me remember who posted it, but I remember somebody suggesting that they were actually both right, or could be both right, if because uh, we're, we're assuming that whoever the couple were, they only went into the yard once. And I remember somebody concocting this scenario that what Kadosh heard was Chapman and the man in the backyard, and he was trying on whatever she was, and either she took fright or whatever, and, and they went back out into the street. And what Mrs. Long saw when he said, will you, was, was him trying to talk her back into the yard. But that obviously that's unprovable. But I remember somebody uh, putting forward that scenario to account for the discrepancy. But you know, I think it's all—it's a moot argument. I mean, it's just—it's one of those things we're talking about. Fifteen minutes. You know, I don't wear a watch now in modern times. So, you know, someone waking up in the middle of the night. You know, somebody walking by—they didn't have wristwatches. So we're—I mean, it's sort of—it's an argument everybody makes out of nothing, in my opinion. We're talking about the difference between ten and fifteen minutes, which, Mm. in the middle of the night, when you don't have a wristwatch right on your hand. It's really – I don't really understand what the argument is like, oh, they were wrong. They were right. Well, they, they were guessing. You know, It's like, well, it's about yeah. 5.20. I normally get up. I'm normally outside at 5.20. I'm normally walking by here at 5.30. It, it's an argument that just – it's circular and it's not really vital one way or the other. Yeah. We're talking about 10 minutes. And I think a lot of the witnesses' statements, I mean, you can find, you know, a, a huge, the, the way they're phrased, you know, at about, or I would estimate the time to be, or, you know, some of the witnesses specifically say. The only one I can remember who was very precise about his times is George Hutchinson, because he was, he was very near the clock, and he was in view of the clock when it happened. And he was quite specific about the time that he met Kelly. Now, back to Kadosh for a little bit and what he claimed to have uh, heard on his two ventures out into his backyard. We've seen um, contemporary illustrations that appeared in the press of what the backyard appeared, uh, an artist's rendition of what the backyard appeared like at the time of her murder. And then we've seen later photographs, some of them probably taken within, I'd say, 40 years or whatever of, of the time of the murder were... But um, it doesn't seem like we have an accurate depiction of what the fence actually looked like. How tall was it? Um, whether there were gaps between the slats, because some illustrations show it to be a short fence with gaps between. Some people question Kadosh's uh, testimony based on, well, he would have seen their heads peeking up over the fence, as close as her body was found to the fence, and if she fell against it. Or, um, you know. Um, I don't believe if he, he claimed that he wasn't able to distinguish if the voice was a man's or a woman's. Isn't that right? When he heard the word no. Um, he doesn't say. So, so um, what, what does anyone want to say about the fence? Is it just that it was tall and the slats were neatly placed together? Should we assume that just based on the fact that he 
we he couldn't see um, the heads up the top, or he, you know, couldn't investigate further what the noise was falling against the the fence. You know, because he was very close proximity to the mm. to the uh, to the attack. Well, I'm having a fence moment here. Hang on, um, I saw, <laughs> I've seen somewhere that it said that the fence was about five foot six mm. high. I think that's um, after Albert Kadoshi's witness statement. So if, if the person that Elizabeth Long saw uh, with Annie Chapman, who was only about five foot, two, five foot, was five foot two, then their heads probably wouldn't have come over it. But I'm looking at a, a, a depiction of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. I'm assuming it's a contemporary one, and it's one of those ones where the fence has got gaps between the palings. And uh, what I found interesting, a little while back, I think Stuart Evans' place put on a, another contemporary illustration that I'd certainly not seen before that talked about this beautiful fan shape of blood on the fence. Oh, I don't know yeah, if anyone like remembers a, like, that. Like a, yeah, like a plume. A feather. Yeah, like a plume. Yeah. 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 Which to me, yeah. thought whoever's drawn that has actually been there, yeah. seen it, drawn it as it was, and, and has been observant enough to say, to actually get wax all lyrical about this apparent, you know, beautiful mm. feather like mm. um, plume. And I seem to remember that image. It had a solid fence, or rather, that yeah. the palings were all <coughs> close together. But there's, there's several illustrations at the time that have it that the palings. There's one that even looks like it's a picket fence. Mm. Uh, one with Dr. Phillips leaning over her body and it bears no resemblance to the backyard whatsoever. Mm. Um, I think what, what we've got to be wary of here is, is that the, the press at the time, both in words and in images, uh, weren't averse to, if you like, romanticising the whole idea of the, mm. the squalid and deprived East End. Mm. Uh, so I, I dare say some sort of editorial influence crept in and, and said, oh, mm. you, you can't show that, there's a perfectly decent fence, go away and do it again. Or <laughs> A lot of the illustrations at the time um, are surprisingly sort of observant. Um, things like the Bucks Row drawings, for example, they actually show you that New Cottage looked different to all the other ones, which it did if you've seen the photographs. Mm. So mm. in a lot of cases, they do, they're obviously there, they're doing it on the spot, if you like. But yeah, things like the fence, I mean, it it's almost as if they've put up a deliberately rickety fence with gaps in it. And I think if it was like, actually like that, we probably would have had a bit more from Kadosh saying if it was get, you know, it would have been light by then. He would have seen movement behind the fence rather yeah. than just the noise. You know. I think also for the early illustrations, you've got to bear in mind that um, with the obvious exception of, of, of Kelly's room at Miller's Court that the, the yard at 29 was, from a police point of view, was by far the most easily contained because mm. the others were out in the open street and so it would have been presumably much easier if there were a you know press agency or whoever or an individual reporter who wanted to get an illustration in with an article very quickly you, you know like the ones of yeah. uh, you know ripper's corner in mitre square i mean that was an open space i know and there's also this business about you know the them letting the windows out presumably an enterprising <laughs> journalist could you know paid his penny and gone up and done a sketch from there mm. You know, if they wanted to get to get the scoop, I think the other the other moot point is we said about you know whether w w would the killer's head have appeared over the fence and all that, uh, and with with regards to Albert Kadosh and the frustration of him not looking over. Of course, we don't know how tall he was. Mm. Yeah. Um, if he, yeah. I mean, if he if he was a, if he was a real short ass, he wouldn't have been able to see over the fence anyway. <laughs> 
He's, he's probably bent up double anyway in his haste to get to the lavatory. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he had more. He had more pressing things on his mind. In more ways than one. Exactly. Now, didn't the police examine what uh, they initially at first thought could have been blood on the fence, um, leading maybe to the suggestion that that the ripper hopped the fence to get away? This was at number wasn't 23, that, wasn't it? Yeah, the bit of soiled... Neighbouring fence. Paper. Right. Yeah. A little crumpled piece of paper, wasn't it, That's with right. blood on yeah. it? And a possible. Um, someone else said a possible trail, which apparently turned out to be urine. Um, heard that perhaps, one. perhaps Albert hopped over the fence. <laughs> 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 now let's uh, talk about some of the th- things that were found at the scene of the crime around Annie Chapman. One of, the, and we've discussed this on prior shows, like the the myths shows, but um, we'll cover it here in brief. And that one of the enduring myths about the murder of Annie Chapman is that there were uh, coins and brass rings mm. deliberately placed in some kind of symbolic manner at the feet of Annie Chapman. <laughs> Um, does anyone want to um, go through what what items were actually found at the scene of the crime? There was the piece of envelope, wasn't there? Piece of envelope with the crest of the Sussex Regiment on it, and wasn't it an M? I'm trying to remember now. Yes, it was. It's it? that one, which which has been sort of mooted as possible links with certain suspects or whatever. When it was plainly, I think it was one of the the night watchmen at Crossingham's in Dorset Street actually saw Annie Chapman pick this scrap of paper up off the floor in the kitchen to wrap the pills in that had fallen out of the box. But that was apparently found, I presume, sans pills uh, by the body. Um, I don't think there's any relevance to it in terms of it being left by the murderer or anything like that. But uh, right. Also found laying around her body was a piece of muslin and two combs. One, a small tooth comb, which is... Uh, the type that you would wear in your hair and a pocket comb in a paper case. So there were no um, rings or coins or anything like that arranged in any kind of Masonic symbol at her feet. Does anyone have any idea where that myth originated from? I'm sure I've read where it did before. but I I think it originated from uh, a witness account attributed to one Emily Walter. She mentioned uh, encountering uh, a sort of dark bearded gentleman with a foreign accent and uh, he was attempting to foist off some polished farthings as, uh, as some half-sovereigns. So uh, what, what I suspect we've got here is a kind of amalgamation of uh, some already dodgy accounts. Whoever Emily, Wilson, uh, Emily Walter was, she certainly didn't have a very long shelf life as a witness, but uh, I think crucially with that one, it involves uh, mention of polished farthings. So perhaps that's, that, that's, they, they crept into uh, the story of uh, Annie's possessions. Uh, Emily Walter claimed that a man tried to actually lure her into the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. That's right. And a few hours prior to the murder of Annie Chapman. Yes, that's correct. You don't, you don't hear very much mention of it thereafter. And certainly the, uh, her description of a sort of uh, tall, scarf-wearing, foreign, bearded man uh, is quite different to other witness descriptions. Or maybe they located him and uh, managed to find an alibi for him. All we know is that uh, Emily, Wal- Emily Walter doesn't appear on uh, Swanson's sort of compilation of witnesses. But uh, I think most crucially, it, do- it does mention these uh, fathers. So I think that's, that's how they crept into uh, Chapman mythology, if you like. Hmm. Now, quickly, 
I wanted to discuss this real quick because this is another discrepancy, and again, it's it's tangential and doesn't have really anything to do with her murder. But some of the injuries that Annie Chapman had on her body stemmed from an earlier fight that she had gotten into at Crossingham's lodging house. And there's a couple of different accounts of what occurred here. One was that uh, that she had uh, argued with uh, Eliza Cooper over a piece of soap, and then. There's another account that has her arguing with Mrs. Palmer over uh, a man, Harry the Hawker, and she was assaulted in that way. Uh, can anyone clear up any of this for us? I mean, is it just that do – we, do we know which, um, which one um, is, is the most accurate? I thought it was Mrs. Cooper again. I, I, I thought that – Palmer was who told us about the fight. I didn't. I may be confused, but I don't believe that Maybe she I'm, had a I'm fight confused. with Palmer and anything. I think she told Amelia Palmer that she'd had a fight with Cooper. And the the discrepancy is what um, what exactly the fight was about. Um, one says that Aunt Annie stealing um, a, a coin or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. It's a nomination. It was something like it was a flubbing. A fifty cent piece for a penny piece, or something. I'm I'm not really sure on those details. No funny well enough to uh, remember exactly uh, what the what the the thing was. Um, and that was one excuse given. And the other was that she was fighting over soap. And I think if I'm not mistaken, and please someone correct me because I, I do admit I'm a little light on these details. The story that she had caught C- Cooper and Chapman were supposedly in a little, uh, uh, three way thing for the same affections for the same man. And so the story that she caught Cooper stealing, I believe if I'm not mistaken, came from Chapman herself. Whereas the story that she was fighting over a bar of soap came from, a third-party uh, version. So um, I think it's uh, in just saying human nature being what it is. I think it's probably more likely that she was fighting over a bar of soap than that um, the, the the object of her rivalry was stealing from the object of her affection type story. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, and if I didn't get those those uh, confused. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no sort of doubt that a fight or some sort of punch-up of some sort took place because I think Annie Chapman had the the bruises to prove it and I think she even showed a black eye to somebody at one point uh, to, it might have been the lodging housekeeper, I think you said Tim, this is is nice isn't it, or something like that about a black eye but um, there's also the argument as to where it actually took place Uh, one account says it took place in the Britannia on the corner of Dorset Street, and another one says it took place in the lodging house, mm. um, or that it started in the lodging house and had spilled over into the Britannia. Um, right, right. Despite the different accounts, there's, there is no <laughs> doubt there was, a, there was a bit of an altercation that involved a bit of, that resulted in some bruising, and apparently the bruising was evident um, on her body when they, when they examined the body later on. What was it? What was the date of that? How long before the the murder was this? Was it about? Was it about two or three days before? Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, was it, 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 it supposedly happened yeah. five between uh, the second and the third. Yeah, is when it was supposed to have happened. Mm. So it's f- five days before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because the bruises I, resulting from that fight were noticeably paler, I think, uh, than the bruises yeah. that she actually had on her neck or whatever it was, or throat, chest, chin. To, can I? Can I just ask? 
Can I just ask, to, to anybody's knowledge, has this um, Harry the Hawker ever been identified? No, no not that I know of. No, okay. No, he's just another one of those sort of uh, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all figures that just pops up yeah. in the narrative, like, um, you know, Mog Cheeks or something like that. You never hear of them again, yeah. Sadly, <laughs> it would just the reason I brought it up was just it would be a little item of interest if indeed she did have uh, she was attacked physically as the result of some kind of lover's triangle as opposed to an argument over a piece of soap and then ends up dead, you know, a, a couple of days later. Well, the, um, well, just, the, the soap incident was was over a lover, wasn't it? Uh, um, over Ted Stanley. I mean, he turns up for, for one of his. Semi-regular visits to uh, to thirty-five Dorset Street, Crossingham's lodging house, um, and uh, he's obviously a bit filthy, uh, being a, a militia man. Um, so Annie probably wants him to get scrubbed up before they uh, they <laughs> snuggle up for the night. So she she borrows this piece of soap and uh, doesn't re- you know doesn't return it, and then she she gets into this fight a couple of days later. Yeah. I'm looking so, at the um... sorry. No, no. I was just going to say that you know this, uh, these sort of uh, feuds uh, could, could have run on for a few days. So it's, it's by no means impossible that the, the scrap of the Britannia uh, happened as well as the altercation in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the um, A to Z, fighting, like smacking each other around wherever they happen to meet up. That's well, kind people, of what it sounds like. Yeah. I'm looking at the A to Z here. Um, just because it's sort of handy. It was written by some people that we might have probably heard of. Um, sometimes paid, about Ted Stanley, it says, sometimes paid for Chapman's bed at Crossingham's lodging house at weekends, as well as for Eliza Cooper's. And I've read that somewhere else before, that he he obviously tried to keep them both in his affections. Dirty old son. Yeah, the pensioner. Randy old man. <laughs> So um, earlier in this in the show, we were talking about Dr. Phillips, uh, him being inaccurate as far as the time of death, placing it at 4.30. Now, at the inquest, he deduced that the killer had some medical expertise, or at least I think his exact words were, had such knowledge of anatomical or pathological examinations to be enabled to secure the pelvic organs with one sweep of a knife. And he also estimated the amount of time that the attack would have taken place, the amount of time that Jack the Ripper would have spent in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street to around 15 minutes. What are we to make of Dr. Phillips's opinion on the medical expertise of the killer in this case, and also how long it would have uh, it taken for the murderer to commit these mutilations. It was quite interesting. It was the first murder to precipitate these rumours that the killer might have had medical knowledge as well as surgical skill. Um, I think it's a great pity that there were no other medical personnel involved um, to either endorse or counter Phillips's views. I mean, in the Edo's case, you had you know two or three or four. I think perhaps the most controversial observation Phillips made was that the uh, entire goal of the murder was to procure organs and that there were no quote-unquote meaningless cuts. Uh, The trouble with that, to my mind, is that obviously if the killer wanted to separate the spinal column, um, as the evidence suggests he did, uh, then that would qualify as a meaningless cut. Uh, And 
he also took only two-thirds of the bladder, and uh, I, I can't think that he meant to do that, to extract only two-thirds. Um, it led to coroner's, coroner Baxter's summing up that the killer might have been on a sort of organ-collecting commission from some uh, American doctor. But it's interesting that this was refuted by the uh, British Medical Journal Association, uh, whatever it's called, and uh, and Baxter gave up on it shortly thereafter. Mm. But as to the length of time it took, I, I you know I wouldn't like to venture a guess. Um, a couple of interesting things there, Ben, in, in, in mitigation to um, to Baxter Phillips, uh, you know, good old George Ponmysel Baxter Phillips, who Ponmysel would, would probably never seen anything like this in his puff, frankly. Um, was that it was actually Wynne Baxter, the uh, the, the lawyer uh, turned coroner, rather than uh, doctor turned coroner, um, who used the phrase "meaningless cuts" in his uh, summing up. And I think um, it was, yeah. But you know, one might be forgiven for thinking that it was Phillips uh, who, who, who used those phrases. In fairness to Phillips, Baxter. Um, uh, Win Baxter puts him on the spot uh, a couple of times at the inquest, and it was only very reluctantly that uh, Dr. Phillips actually gave his opinions um, at the inquest. He thought it was, you know, completely improper, but uh, Win Baxter insisted that he carry on. Uh, the other point is the the, the bit about the uh, undoubtedly the work of an expert, or at least someone possessing of sufficient anatomical knowledge to secure the organs, etc., etc. That little soundbite appeared in, in the Lancet it wasn't in the uh, in the inquest itself, this was published in the Lancet um, several days after the inquest yes that's right yeah Yeah, and, and that article is actually unattributed it may have been an editorial but it isn't actually, you know, here's George Baxter Phillips's article on the Chapman murder, it's not, it's, it's some comment that was passed uh, in, in the Lancet so um, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Baxter Phillips' pronouncements, but I think uh, on those two points, he is more sinned against than sinning. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was the others who were sort of drawing maybe errant conclusions from um, Phillips' yeah. findings. Um, uh, he, he does actually say, though, that, that, that uh, you know, that this, uh, there's no doubt about the fact that he did estimate the, the length of time that it took to commit the uh, mutilations at 15 minutes, or, as he put it, uh, if he were doing so deliberately, uh, you know, uh, in a medical sense, it would have taken him the best part of an hour. But frankly, when you look at the <coughs> the time frames involved in um, in, in in the Edo's murder, uh, you know, which give or take a bit of um, uh, chronological error, you know, where, where's a horologist when you need them? Um, uh, was was a very very compressed timescale at Mitre Square, and 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 given that Edo's was significantly more plundered than uh, than Annie Chapman. I dare say that uh, the Chapman episode l lasted a handful of minutes at most. Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm no doctor. I'm certainly not a murderer, but um, it, the organs were taken. And I don't know, to be honest with you, how easy it is to access a, a uterus and things like that, whether how far near the front they are and all this sort of thing. Biology is not my strong point, but it's certainly not like um, trying to get hold of a kidney in the dark, for example. So I think that possibly a certain amount of speed is involved. 15 minutes might be a little bit um, generous. That, that's, that was kind of my opinion as well, is that 15 minutes seemed like an awful long time. 
And maybe, you know, this, like Gareth had mentioned, this does go back to questioning um, Phillips's time of death. I mean, if he said it could have taken him a better part of a half an hour or whatever, you know, he's, we're looking at between, we're looking at 15 minutes between the, the um, roughly between Kadosh and Long's sightings and the discovery of the body at, at 5.45, so. It's worth noting as well that the, the, uh, the mutilations were pretty crudely done. Um, the incision to the neck is described as jagged. Um, so, you know, no clean sweep of the knife there, evidently. Um, and when it comes to the abdominal um, uh, mutilations, it's particularly interesting in the context of, of more upstream murders, uh, such as Kelly's, uh, where uh, the flesh from the abdomen was removed in three flaps. Now, up until recently, um, one would have thought that this was only true of the Kelly murder. However, due to the uh, the, the, the sterling efforts of, 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 of people like Chris and others who've been transcribing stuff onto the um, onto the press reports pages of uh, of the case book, we've now got um, reports that go into much more detail about. Uh, the Chapman murder than had previously uh, been available. And in those reports, notably the Echo and the um, the Morning Advertiser, uh, we get a, a deal more detail about the, the, the Chapman mutilations um, than, than I'd seen in any book previously. Um, of course, in the Chapman murder, we don't actually have the uh, inquest transcripts or, or the official inquest transcripts or the police statements uh, still in existence so up until now, we've had to rely on um, largely what was said in, if you like, the big three newspapers. That's that's the Star, the Telegraph, uh, and the Times. Um, and you know, a lot of of, of the proceedings were summarised there. Um, and it seems that the editors of the aforementioned papers took Win Baxter's uh, advice in, in in not quite suppressing the evidence, but in actually sort of toning it down. Um, so you don't get the gory detail in, the, in those papers, the, the contents of which have been summarised in various books over the years. But if you look at some of the, the fringe newspapers, I'm actually quite fond of the Morning Advertiser uh, and the Echo because they do go into this addition, additional detail. You'll find there quite clearly that uh, Dr Phillips said that um, uh, three flaps of flesh were removed from the abdomen and, and that uh, the abdomen was excavated, if you like, more on the right-hand side of the body than, than the left so clearly the killer's working very, very quickly with a small area of the abdomen here uh, in order to gain access to, uh, to, to its contents. So that, again, you know, just the savagery of the whole thing uh, points to a very rapid timeline on the part of the killer. Yes, and it militates the, the idea that she was sort of dissected and sort of, uh, you know, it, it goes against the sort of Gladstone bag stuff of sort of a... An organ. Well, it does. If you, if you read the detail, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it's an absolutely shocking affair. Mm. I, mean, I think if you've got someone like Dr. Phillips, who's probably been trained to do things like that in a certain way, then it's quite possible that the person who was doing those mutilations had not been trained to do certain things in a certain way and just went for it, whereas maybe yeah. Dr. Phillips would have taken a much more methodical approach, hence his sort of long time estimate. Well, indeed, it's, it's, it's a bit like, you know, the, the old cliché of... Um, um, my my four year old kid knows how to use the DVD player better than I do. <laughs> you can't quite really help me. You know, how is that possible? You know, he's only a child. Um, 
but yeah, they're a different generation. They think in a different way. They act in a different way. Uh, and uh, and I dare say, you know, a well-trained person thinks in a rather different way to a mani- maniacal disemboweler. Exactly. In fact, but rather yeah. yeah, and doc- doctors certainly aren't trained to act quickly. You know, they're, they're you know they're used to lots of light and being methodical. So, um... well, that's true. I've been waiting four months to see a specialist, but we won't go into that. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say on this whole business of the you know the medical um, expertise and the time taken and all that. I think one thing that always sort of militates against this is the both in modern times and then was the supposition or the assumption of knowing what the motive of the killer was. Because if you assume uh, as a two-part motive, firstly that the primary motive of the uh, killer was organ acquisition, and then you go on to say not only was it that, but it was the acquisition of a particular organ, i.e. the uterus, then obviously that's going to colour the way you think he would have worked because he was aiming at one particular organ and your if if he was simply and a crude way of putting it but if he was simply rabbiting around in an opened up abdomen and and literally grabbed and cut off what came to hand um, i think that obviously that would enable a much quicker timeline because he would literally be scrabbling around in a frenzy um, and, and as was said in this case, in the Chapman case, I, I don't think there can be any sort of argument that the excision of the organs showed any kind of um, surgical finesse because, I mean, he took the uterus, part of the bladder, part of the vagina, and, you know, this, this great lump of material, to put it crudely, which he'd excised with some fairly savage and jagged cuts. And I, I just can't see how anybody could argue from that that it showed any kind of surgical precision or knowledge to me it's just a it's it's almost like smash a grab. it's a smash and grab raid i mean to put it crudely there's That's also the, 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 the sorry go, go ahead john please oh. there's also the sort of idea that um hanging around was probably not an option you know spending 15 minutes just sort of loitering around picking bits here and there is not an option when you see like the backyard and how many windows were overlooking that backyard and you're doing it right in front of a back door um and all that sort of thing. I don't think hanging around would have been an option either. It, like, like Chris mm. says, it you that is get in, do it, go, like yeah. that. Absolutely. Okay. Now, the murder of Annie Chapman, of course, took place between the murder of Polly Nichols and the double event. And it's been suggested that Annie Chapman's, because it fell so closely on the heels of the Polly Nichols murder, really inaugurated the autumn of terror and the level of the brutality and the media attention given it and all. But at the same time, it's it's been suggested that her death is, is one of the most um, kind of underlooked in modern times, understudied. Um, people don't really discuss it too much in, in, in any kind of detail as compared to the, like the double event or the murder of Mary Kelly. Do you guys believe that, I mean, although the this murder took the Whitechapel murders series to new heights. Annie Chapman's death is fairly a neglected area of study. Could it be because there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that Chapman was a ripper victim? I mean, I think some of the, uh, the canonicals and the non-canonicals get discussed a lot because of the question marks over was she or wasn't she a ripper victim? I think, you know, certainly with Kelly and Stride and Tabram, a lot of the debate around them and the discussion around them concerns... 
um, you know, whether they were killed by Jack the Ripper. But uh, I think if there's one dead cert uh, in terms of uh, being killed by the Ripper, it's got to be Chapman. And so it could be for that reason that she's discussed a little less. Um, and, and there's also there's nothing distinctive about her. She wasn't the first. She wasn't the double event. She wasn't the last. Um, <clears throat> And, and, and as you said, no one really seems to question whether or not she was a Ripper victim. So when you sort of add all of that together, being that there's no uncertainty and there's nothing really unique, uh, which is a horrible word to say, <laughs> but about her killing in in so far as the series, that I just think, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned before when we were having this conversation, that there there there's just she's sort of just one of those she's she's one of the series and 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 she's just she's not as stand out as the rest i thought i thought i've just that's just come come up into my head was that um because she was well i suppose to to them at the time she was the third if not the fourth um after the polly nichols murder um there was this name starting to be banded about leather apron um and and, and the fact that there was a apron found by by Annie Chapman's body at the time. Um, Annie Chapman's murder somehow almost seems to be eclipsed by the, the panic that started up at that time. I believe it was on the same day that that man Squibby was being chased by Walter Jew and Jew and all the, the people chased him and followed him up the road and all the rest of it. That it, it, it seems like there was a lot of talk about the leather apron scare, I suppose they call it, mm-hmm. um, because suddenly we, we've definitely got something going on here. And I just get the feeling maybe, maybe the, after that murder, there was so much talk about finding this leather apron or any other suspect or any other odd individual with a funny look or whatever it was, and the panic was building up, uh, that it sort of eclipsed the actual facts of her murder. And it was sort of got caught up in the in the sudden or the, the rapidly developing moral panic that was beginning to develop at that time. I don't know if anyone else thought, thinks that's a possibility. I, if Chapman is neglected as a, as, as a, as a victim, as an, uh, not as, a, as an area of study, I think that's a sort of comparatively modern thing because if you look at the press coverage, I mean, it was as, as huge and as intensive for her murder, in some ways more so, I think, for one particular reason, which was uh, obviously, you know, between the uh, Nichols murder and the Chapman murder, there was only just over a week. Um, so in, in which uh, there was only eight days for the, the press to dwell solely on Nichols. But once you got to Chapman, there was then from the 8th up to the 30th, so you had three weeks in which, you know, they had to fill the presses and there was, you know, they needed fodder for their articles. And so I think, you know, the certainly the Chapman uh, press accounts, I mean, if you, I mean they're, they're very long. There's a lot of them. So she was certainly covered in depth at the time. Uh, and and so I think okay. she, she certainly sparked off, you know, a huge amount of police activity. I think it's, yeah, was it two hundred yeah. lodging houses in the area were uh, investigated um, in the wake of her murder, and and, and you know inquiries made as to uh, as to who had been coming in late at night and all that sort of stuff. So you know the inquiry yeah. itself really took off. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the Nichols Chapman murders are my personal double event. Um, not that I want to stray into that. No, but you know the, the the short space of time between those two really sort of lit the touch paper on the entire inquiry. I think. I think it's also interesting that Chapman is the is the the one victim whose uh, 
mentioned by name in the early letters because that that rather cryptic first letter that predates the Dear Boss letter, it's it's not signed Jack the Ripper, obviously, because that was the 25th of September letter, but there's that earlier letter where the chap supposedly gives his name and address and he blanks them out. And he says he's a horse slaughterer. But he specifically said that the reason he killed was because he was after Chapman. And he actually names her. He said, it was, uh, he said I was after the woman Chapman. Much uh, is commented upon in the Mitre Square murder of um, the uh, speed and, and swiftness and the, um, the gall it takes for the Ripper to commit the Eddowes crime in that location, in that amount of time, between police beats. But mm. correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, 17 people living in 29 Hanbury Street far outnumbers the number of human beings in an, in, living around Mitre Square at the time of the Catherine Eddowes attack, correct? Yeah, yeah. and in a much smaller space as well. Yeah, much I mean, smaller houses space and later, later in the morning. At a much more dangerous time because it was just yes. about the time when a lot of people would have been stirring and getting up and, and either getting ready for work or actually going to work. Right. So it's interesting that the Mitre Square attack is pointed to as how ballsy the Ripper was in, in, in his attacks. You know, but if you assume that, that the Ripper fled through the p- same passageway at 29 Hanbury Street that he entered with Annie Chapman going on um, – a quarter till six in, in the morning with the amount of organs he's carrying with him mm. and the amount of people living in that building, it makes the Mitre Square attack look almost, you know, simple by comparison, less risky. I think apart, think from, apart from the fact that uh, Miller's court murder was done indoors, I think Mitre Square was probably the body, the most quietest one of the lot. Um, I think the main I think the main puzzlement over, from what I remember, you know, from the press accounts, the, the main puzzlement over the Mitre Square murder is more to do with the, with the lighting conditions. You know, how could he have done what he did in such a dark, unlit corner? I've got, yeah, Mitre Square as well. You know, it's got the, the, the dubious sort of uh, benefit of, of the double event and the bloody writing on the wall. Sorry, yeah. the chalk writing on the bloody wall. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, which which you don't have here, or, or you do actually. I mean, there were some spurious accounts of uh, various slogans going up after the Chapman murder. You know, was it five more or five down fifty more, and I give myself up? Yeah, um, which came out around about the same time. Supposedly uh, written on yeah, the shutter. Supposedly. Yes. Yeah, but you know, I mean, these um, uh, these never caught the, the the public or the press imagination uh, to the same extent that the Goulston Street graffito did. Um, but yeah, I mean, so, so, so the, you know, the double event, uh, uh, as it's known, was sort of um, hypercharged by various other uh, sort of factors that uh, that have adhered to it ever since. Uh, whereas there have been very few mysteries, apart from the, the spurious ones about the you know uh, the rings representing the pillars of Solomon's Temple and the bloody farthings and all that, which 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 really sort of came out of Stephen Knight's um, um, Final Solution book. Um, there hasn't been that much mystique around the Chapman murder, murder which is a crying shame because you know there's so much. Uh, detail there, uh, even in the absence of the detailed inquest reports and so on, um, the number of suspects that sort of w- were flushed out around about that time, or as a consequence, uh, we've mentioned Leather Apron, um, you know, John Pizer, uh, allegedly identified as uh, uh, as Leather Apron by, by Sergeant Thick. Uh, you had Jakob Eisenschmidt then, um, 
and and plausible rogues like uh, Violina stepping in uh, to to just to get a view with a corpse and all that sort of stuff. So there, there were lots of interesting things happening around the time of the of the Chapman murder, and of course the the American Doctor theory, uh, which you know planted the seed for for future speculation. I dare say around that area. Um, so even if it's even if the Chapman murder isn't you know big big in its own right, there are certain sort of themes that come out of it that uh, permeate the rest of the of the story really. Mm. And today um, we have w- with the collection of photographs that have been assembled of Twenty Nine Hanbury Street and, and the backyard of Twenty Nine Hanbury Street. You know some of the um, those backyard photographs are. Um, some of the creepiest. Um, so we don't really have close to contemporary photographs of Miter Square and the exact location of Edo's death, but the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street is pretty haunting looking. The James Mason, the London that nobody knows, is one of the most famous you know, scenes um, mm-hmm. and film for Ripperologists. The Whitby collection that Philip Hutchison um, captured that uh, the uh, step-by-step walk through the passageway of 29 Hanbury Street. I mean, there are, I guess, aspects of the Annie Chapman murder uh, more more kind of centering on its location, though, than than the details of, of the crime itself, you know. Um, so most of those photographs of the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street um, were taken probably in about the last 10 years before it was demolished. I think that the oldest one I can vaguely recall I think might be from the 30s but um, otherwise they're all from the 60s and 70s so you know, when you're talking about what the fence would have been like I mean, there's no way to know what the fence would have been like because it's such an easily replaceable thing mm. we haven't got I don't think we have any photographs of the backyard we have photographs of the front of the house going back to about the 20s or a bit a little bit earlier but uh, not, not the backyard it's all too far gone um, to get a really good angle on what the backyard would have looked like then. When, when was when was that? Was it the late sixties that was demolished? Um, I believe it's April nineteen seventy. When, so when was that James Mason film? Was that very close to the de- demolition? Yeah, nineteen sixty-seven. It was done. Right. I want to sort of point out maybe something um, about her life before she was murdered or, or maybe even before she sort of started going down down the road to ruin as it were um, because when she was married and I think even before she was sort of married and around about that time because of John's Chapman's job they were living in places like um, Brook Mews and Montpellier Place and I believe her mother was living in Montpellier Place which is in Knightsbridge and would it would do we sort of believe that out of all the victims, and we know a lot about a lot, a lot of the victims apart from Mary Kelly, do we think that she might be the one, despite her drink problem, which you'll probably come to later on, would we say possibly that she's the one that actually probably had the, the best life in terms of where she lived and living conditions, or even though they were obviously in service to wealthy people, because the places they were living in, according to the Booth sort of notebooks and stuff like that were, were, were mainly yellow um, upper middle class places. Do you think that maybe she probably would have experienced the nicest environment to, to, to live in before she went went to, went to rack and ruin as it were? 
quite possibly, which is which is tragic in the sense that uh, mm. it would mean that she suffered the biggest fall from grace in a way. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, I was I mean, looking. Go ahead. Sorry. So I was cause I was looking at this today because um, it's all very easy for us to assume that places like Knightsbridge are, and and that are always going to be full of very wealthy people and incredibly you know posh, as they say. But um, back then. They were still pretty much like that. The only one that wasn't was uh, South Bruton Mews, which was a tiny little purple strip in the middle of a whole field of yellow on the booth map. And purple was a sort of a mixture of poor and comfortable, which is sort of where they were living at one point as well. But yeah, it just seems like they were in a very nice part of London, thank you very much, for quite a while. I also think that you know, new people who come to the case... Uh, it always irks me greatly whenever someone comes on the message boards, especially, and they start talking about these poor women and how they never had a chance. And it's not like they chose this and this wasn't their lot in life and they had no other options. And and we, we have to feel this terrible pity because they had no other options. And I think that when you actually look at the lives of those that we do know um, some bit about, you know, and we come to find out that that's not really true. And Annie Chapman is, of course, the quintessential example of that, of somebody who really did have much better options. Uh, and, and she didn't necessarily have to come to the end that she came to. Not saying that it's her fault. Obviously, I always have to throw in that caveat before I get called, you know, the vicious evil that I am. But, uh, you know, not saying she deserved that, but, you know, we, when we look at these women and everybody says, well, you know, they had no other options, and, and, and that's not really true. And I think Annie Chapman is, is, is a pretty typical example of that, about how she did have options, and and a lot of the choices that she made led her to where she was. You know, that's not to say that, they, you know, they were very well off or anything, but nonetheless, no. you, you, you are right, and it uh, it seems that both she and, uh, and her husband, John, uh, were both, you know, very fond of the drink. Uh, mm. uh, while John was, you know, holding down these uh, these jobs for noblemen, um, uh, both in Knightsbridge and while they were living out in uh, Oxfordshire, I think. Um, where, where Annie Chapman even then was was described as wandering around like a tramp. Um, yeah, a cluer in Windsor, wasn't it? It was, it was Windsor departure. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, so so even then, even even when you know she was married, she she had a lovely young family, and we, we, we're lucky. You know, thanks to Neil Sheldon's work, have photographs of uh, of of the family. Uh, even then, when 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 life was smiling on her, I mean, she took to the bottle, and so it seems did her husband as well. It's about, I seem to believe it's suggested that it was a, a family trait of the Smiths. Um. Because her, her brother, Fountain Smith or Fontaine Smith, uh, not long after her murder, was lost his job because he was started drinking too much and nicking stuff from his employer and things like that. And um, there's that possibility. I think it's in the letter that um, that was that may be mentioned soon um, about. I think it was Miriam letter from Miriam, wasn't it, um, that I believe that the two sisters had taken a vow of temperance, yeah. so as if as if it was like rife in their family and they decided to do something about it. Yeah, and wasn't, wasn't it her father was, was um, said to have committed suicide by cutting his own throat as well? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we've got, you know, all these different undercurrents of, of, of misery, actually, running, running through the family and 
Um, you know, the life with the children wasn't good with, 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 with the crippled son and the daughter dying of meningitis, which ironically, I think Annie Chapman was probably suffering from at the time she was killed. Right. Um, she had a number of ailments like um, lung and um, brain disease. Um, yes. And I think the pills that she had in the envelope were something to treat one of those conditions, but she was unaware that she was dying. Um, and, um, but she complained of it quite frequently, it seems like, on, and, uh, um, of feeling ill on the days leading up to her death. Mm. Now, uh, John had mentioned uh, um, the letter from Miriam, um, Annie Chapman's sister, and I'm not too uh, clear on, on the details of this, but there was something published in 1889 in the Pall Mall Gazette. And whether that was a short excerpt from this letter, um, but nevertheless, a longer letter was published in a Canadian newspaper. January 1892. 1892. Um, mm. So, um, as John had mentioned, some of the uh, relatives of Annie Chapman had, had taken a vow of temperance after... Um, yeah. the murder. Could you explain some of what, what that letter from her sister was about? Well, it, it's rather, it's the, it's the provenance of it that's a little odd. Firstly, the, the letter isn't signed, so it isn't, we, you know, we don't know the name of which sister it's from. But the, the context of it is a bit odd, because in the article in the Canadian paper, the Manitoba Daily Free Press, it's, um, the, the article is actually purportedly about a campaign by the local temperance union, and it sounds such a, a strange and inconsequential thing to involve this, but the local temperance union were campaigning to have alcoholic wine banned from use at the altar. They were asking for unfermented wine to be used so there would be no alcohol content. Um, and this letter is, is cited and uh, supposedly was forwarded uh, voluntarily um, because the, le- the very first le- a line of the letter from Chapman's sister says, Dear Sir, as a Christian member of your congregation, may I ask if it would be possible for you to have unfermented wine at the Lord's table? And so the, these, this temperance group in Winnipeg is using this letter as um, ammunition in their campaign. But she then goes on with this long, detailed, as as um, as the guys mentioned, she says that um, when she was five years old, her father committed suicide. Um, and then Annie took rep- uh, repeatedly tried um, to uh, uh, go on the wagon. Um, she says over and over again, she, that is Annie, signed the pledge and tried to keep it. Over and over again, she was tempted and fell. And then there's this very odd story, because apparently the husband as well, John, he he went on the wagon. Uh, She says, Annie tried over and over again to give up drink. And then she went into a home. She said she went into a home for the cure of the intemperant. And her husband paid 12 pence a week, and she stayed there for one year. So And she came out a changed woman, a sober wife and mother. Um and the husband also had given up drink. And then there's this very odd and very, to me, unconvincing sounding incident whereby it says the husband had a, a very heavy cold and he took one drink, as she says, to fortify himself against the cold. He took a, a glass of hot whiskey um, and he, he made sure he didn't do it in Annie's presence. But then he kissed her and just the alcohol fumes on his breath got her going again. And, it's, and she says oh, she never tried again to give up. She said it was no use. No one knew the fearful struggle and all that. And I have, um, 
Yeah, I think that was mentioned before, and I, I kind of scoffed at it myself because didn't you know her husband supposedly had as much of a problem with alcohol yeah, as she did, yeah, and yeah. he took an entire drink and was able to uh, you know refrain from temptation, but she kisses him and. Or I think another version I saw was licked a spoon or something. I'm not really sure what it was, and then yeah. she falls off the wagon. That's but, right. Uh, but it, so I, I, it was one of more of those uh, excuses, in my opinion, of, of why yeah. someone goes to do what they did. The very Victorian thing, um, they act, uh, the letter actually blames the affliction of the child it's, uh, because it says she could not keep sober, so she left her husband and two children, one a dreadful cripple, through her drink, as though, you know, this is a curse from God that the child's been crippled because... Um, and then as... Um, as was mentioned, uh, she then, it's only halfway through the letter, she specifically names her. She says, I need not follow her history, for if you read the life of Annie Chapman, one of the worst victims in the terrible Whitechapel murders, you read the end of my sister's life. And then as said, it then goes on to say that the curse carried on. Um, my, my only brother, aged 28, inherited the curse. And it's, it was he who had the painful task of identifying my murdered sister and laying her in the grave. And then about him... He got a situation in Oxford Street. He was only there a month, took to drink again, and absconded with some money. Uh, and then eventually gave himself up to the police. And then there's there's even a quote from a letter from Fontaine or Fountain to his wife, all about the curses of drink and this, that, and the other. So it's it's a, in some ways a very odd letter. I mean, it, it gives. Um, well, I remember when I first posted this on the boards because I think it was Neil who obviously had done a lot of work. There was some of, some of the details uh, didn't ring true, especially the number of siblings um, didn't uh, gel with what we know about Chapman. Um, and it's because it says uh, when when she starts off the letter, she says, "Just before I was six years old, my father cut his throat, leaving my mother with five children, three girls older and one younger than myself." So she's saying there's five five girls, uh, one of whom obviously was Annie. And uh, also, it says here that um, yes, it says here that Annie. She says of Annie that she had eight children, and she says six of these have been victims to the curse. Meaning that they could have been stillborn? Well, mm. yeah, it doesn't mean whether... It, it, yeah, it's unclear. It doesn't, uh, it's not, you know, it could mean they grew to adulthood and ended up as alcoholics, or it could mean that, like the other child, that... Um, but uh, who these other... Because she said that she, she left her husband with two children, one of whom was a cripple, but it's not then clear who she allegedly had these other six children by. So, you know, there's some little snippets in there that are interesting, but it's, it's the context of it that puzzles me you know this um whether this was solicited by the temperance union as a sort of advert for the the perils of drink or whether she came forward because it said she handed it in to a local church in chelsea because the very last letter part it says copy of a letter received by the reverend james patterson presbyterian minister at chelsea so she obviously handed this in in london and then it was forwarded to this temperance union in Canada. So there's quite a lot of sort of uh, interesting little points in there. One of Miriam's sisters, the letter writer, uh, um, Emily Smith, um, ended up taking in John and Annie Georgina. As we mentioned earlier, Emily Ruth Chapman died of meningitis mm. uh, at age 11, I believe. 
Um, but nevertheless, one of Miriam's sisters, Emily, ended up taking in Annie, Georgina, and John. And it suggested in, in Neil uh, Sheldon's book, The Victims of Jack the Ripper, that, that it's quite possible that the um, children were left unaware of what had happened to um, their mother. But nevertheless, John, who was a cripple, the son, um, you know, never, never married, but Annie Georgina Chapman did marry and has descendants you know, with us living mm. today. They, they, the, the letter does actually mention that because in the last paragraph it says, my sister and I have my murders, murdered sister's children to keep and we don't want them to know it. Also, my aged mother knows nothing of it. So they obviously kept it from the children and from Annie Chapman's mother. Wow. There was some hint at the time, actually. I can't remember which witness said it, um, uh, but one of them did, <laughs> that um, uh, they knew that Annie's mother was alive, but they, but they didn't get on any too well. Mm. So that, that, mm. that, that might be a tangential indication there, at least, of the, uh, of the Miriam letter. Because there seems to have been some friction between Annie and her mother. Am, am I am I remembering correctly? When the uh, there was one account and it said about the two children and it said one was a cripple. Was it was it Chapman's daughter who was allegedly at a school in France? Yes. Yeah, so I remember yeah. it was circus. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was. Yeah. That, 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 that's apparently a, a myth. I think it was Neil uh, Sheldon who searched the family. Um, you know. Uh, Established that the the circus story or going away to a school in France was um, was was nothing but a, a legend, family myth. Yeah, yeah. There's also the suggestion that um, Annie Georgina went to a like a fee paying school, quite a nice fee paying school, and the money was put forward by one of Annie Chapman's sisters. That was another one. Which sounds slightly more believable. Yeah. Okay. For the sake of our listeners, we have photo- a photograph of Annie Chapman and her husband John um, taken in 1869, and photographs of two of her children. We're lacking a photograph of John Chapman, the cripple, but nevertheless, we have one of Emily Ruth and of Annie Georgina, and these were given to Neil Sheldon by. Annie Chapman's living descendants, and, that, and and if you want to read more about that, that's in his book, The Victims of Jack the Ripper, and he um, describes how when he met the descendant and was shown these photographs, they were unaware of the identity of Annie Chapman, as, if I'm remembering correctly, in the photograph. He knew uh, by sight what uh, that he was looking at a picture of Annie Chapman, and they were unaware totally unaware that mm. that she was a victim of Jack the Ripper. So the um, hiding of, of this event from the family, immediately afterwards hiding it from her children seemed to have been yeah. pretty successful as it, as yeah. it was hidden you know, from sub- the subsequent generations. So, but that, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good book to get if you're interested in, in reading about the descendants of the victims of Jack the Ripper. Does anyone else have anything to add? on um, the life and death of Annie Chapman before we call it a podcast? Uh, well, just, 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 just playing catch-up here. I mean, yes, Ben. The, the bit I missed. Did you come to any consensus with regard to Long and Kadosh versus Dr. Phillips when it comes to the time of death? Uh, I, um, the did cons- you decide on... The consensus was that um, Dr. Phillips was mistaken. And, okay, right. And the... Um, 
but the possibility is is um, been suggested that long sighting could have happened earlier than sh- than she states it did. That's right. Yes. Well, in that case, I I agree, I agree with the consensus. Uh, and of course, there's um, there's Rich- Richardson. There's John Richardson's evidence to sort of semi endorse Adosh and Long's observations because uh, you know the chances of a body being missed at uh, at four forty whatever it was is, is very unlikely. I think he was there at four forty five. So um, again, you probably probably covered this, but uh, just uh, yeah. Sorry, just Ben. You snooze, you lose. If you're not on the podcast, we're not going to rehab. Bloody microphone. I don't know. <laughs> but but yeah, we. Yeah, so we basically came to the consensus that there was no way Dr. Phillips could have act that accurately um, at 6.30 in the morning um, stated the time of death with any, any kind of accuracy. And, and if, there's a, if there is a window there of 40, 45 minutes, let's say, then that, that leaves – we believe that we should give Dr. Phillips that, that window of 45 minutes that apparently he wasn't able to uh, – to give himself at the time, so I think, I think there's, there's too much kind of eyewitness compatibility that would sort of um, militate against uh, Phillips's views there. Um, right. So yes, I, I agree totally. Good. Okay. A- anyone else have any uh, last final thoughts? Don't think so. No. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks everyone for coming on the show today. And that was RipperCast, episode 41, Another Fiendish Crime, The Murder of Annie Chapman. I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. That was Chris Scott, John Bennett, Gareth Williams, Ben Holm, and Allie Ryder. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at the website www.casebook.org podcast, or in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section under History, keyword is RipperCast. If you have any questions or comments for myself or any of the participants on this show, feel free to email us at rippernet at mac.com. And I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh,